They look like drawings, but there are voices inside the letters. Every page is an infinite box of voices. Mia Kuto, Sands of the Emperor Trilogy. The inert signs of an alphabet become living meanings in the mind. Literacy, like all learned activities, appears to alter our brain organization. Siri Hustfet, Living, Thinking, Looking. It pleases me to think how astonished old Homer, whoever he was, would be to find his epics on the shelf of such an unimaginable being as myself, in the middle of an unrumored continent. Marilyn Robinson. When I was a child, I read books. Reading is always a passage, a journey, a departure where we discover ourselves. Reading, even though it is typically a sedentary act, returns us to our nomadic state. Antonio Basanta, Lear contra la nada, reading against nothingness. Above all, the book is a repository of time, a prodigious trap with which human intelligence and sensitivity overcame that ephemeral fleeting condition that led the experience of life into the oblivion of nothingness. Emilio Ledo, Los Libros y la Libertad, Books and Freedom. Prologue. Mysterious bands of men on horseback travel the roads of Greece. The country folk watch them with suspicion from their plots of land or the doors to their huts. They know from experience that only those who represent danger travel. Soldiers, mercenaries, and slave traders. They frown and grumble until the men disappear over the horizon. Country folk do not look kindly upon armed strangers. The horsemen ride on, paying the villagers no heed. For months, they have climbed mountains, traversed ravines, crossed valleys, forded rivers, and sailed from island to island. Their muscles have hardened and their endurance increased since they were sent on this peculiar mission. To achieve their task, they must venture into violent realms in a world that is almost continually at war. These are hunters in search of a special kind of prey. Prey that is silent, cunning, and vanishes without a trace. If these menacing envoys were to sit down in a tavern in some port, or other, to drink wine, eat seared octopus, talk, and make merry with strangers, something they never do out of caution, they could tell great tales of their travels. They have entered lands racked with plague. They have crossed regions scorched by fire. They have seen the warm ashes of destruction, 
and the brutality of rebels and mercenaries at war. Since maps of extensive territories do not yet exist, they have strayed and wandered directionless for days on end, beneath the fury of sun and storms. They've been forced to drink foul waters that have caused them horrendous diarrhea. Whenever it rains, their carts and mules get stuck in the morass. They have pulled amid cries and curses until they collapsed to their knees, their faces pressed to the earth. When night falls on them, far from shelter, only their capes shield them from scorpions. They have known the maddening torment of lice and the constant threat of the bandits roaming the roads. Often as they ride through vast, desolate terrain, they shudder to imagine these outlaws lying in wait, holding their breath, lurking at a bend in the road, ready to fall upon them, murder them in cold blood, plunder their bags, and leave their warm corpses among the bushes. It makes sense for them to be wary. The king of Egypt has entrusted great sums of money to them before sending them to carry out his orders across the sea. In those times, only a few decades after the death of Alexander, it was highly dangerous, almost suicidal, to travel with a large fortune. And though thieves, daggers, contagious diseases, and shipwrecks threatened to cause such an expensive mission to fail, the pharaoh insists on sending his agents out from the country of the Nile, crossing borders and traversing great distances in all directions. The king thirsts after his prey with impatient desire, while his secret hunters scour the earth facing unknown perils. The country folk who spied from their doorways or the mercenaries and bandits would have widened their eyes and dropped their jaws in amazement had they known what the foreign horsemen pursued. Books. They were searching for books. It was the best kept secret of the Egyptian court the lord of the two lands, one of the most powerful men of his time, would sacrifice lives. The lives of others, of course, that's always the way with kings, to obtain all the books in the world for his great library in Alexandria. He was chasing the dream of an absolute, perfect library, a collection that would gather together every single work, by every single author since the beginning of time. I'm always afraid to write the first lines to enter inside a new book. When I have explored all the libraries, when my notebooks are bursting with fevered jottings, when I can no longer think of any reasonable excuses or even nonsensical ones to keep waiting, I still put it off a few days, during which I understand what cowardice really means. I simply don't feel like I can.
everything should be there. Tone, sense of humor, poetry, rhythm, promises. I should be able to glimpse the still unwritten chapters. Struggling to be born where the seeds of the first chosen words have been sown. But how is it done? Right now, I feel heavy with doubts. With every book, I go back to the beginning, and my heart races as if it were the very first time. To write is to try to find out what we would write if we wrote, says Marguerite Dura. Moving from the infinitive to the conditional, and then to the subjunctive, as if she could feel the ground splitting beneath her feet. It isn't so different in the end from any of the things we start doing, without knowing how to do them. Speaking another language, driving, being a mother, living. After all the agonies of doubt. After exhausting every possible delay and excuse, one hot July afternoon, I face the void of the blank page. I've decided to open with the image of some enigmatic hunters stalking their prey. I identify with them. I appreciate their patience, their stoicism, the time they have taken, their steadiness. The adrenaline of the search. For years, I have worked as an academic, consulting sources, keeping records, trying to get to know the historical material. But when it comes down to it, I'm so amazed by the true and recorded history I discover that it seeps into my dreams and acquires, without my volition, the shape of a story. I'm tempted to step into the skin of those who traveled the roads of an ancient, violent, tumultuous Europe in pursuit of books. What if I start by telling the story of their journey? It might work, but how can I keep the skeleton of facts distinct beneath the muscle and blood of imagination? The initial idea seems to me as fantastical as the journey in search of King Solomon's mines, or the lost ark. But historical documents show that in the megalomaniacal minds of the kings of Egypt, it was truly possible. It might have been the last and only time, there in the third century BC. That the dream of gathering all the books in the world, without exception, in a universal library, could become a reality. Today, it seems like the plot of a fascinating abstract story by Borges, or perhaps his great erotic fantasy. In the era of the Great Alexandrian Project, there was no such thing as an international book trade. Books could be bought in cities with a long-standing cultural life, but not in the young Alexandria. Sources tell us that the kings used the immense advantages of absolute power to enrich their collection. What they could not purchase, they seized. If throats had to be slit or harvests laid waste, 
to get hold of a coveted book, they ordered that it be done, telling themselves that their country's splendor was more important than minor scruples. Of course, deception was part of the repertory of things they were willing to meet their goals. Ptolemy III coveted the official versions of the book, of the works of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, preserved in the archives of Athens since their earliest performances at theater festivals. The pharaoh's ambassadors asked to borrow the valuable scrolls to have them copied by their meticulous scribes. The Athenian authorities demanded the exorbitant security deposit of 15 talents of silver, an equivalent today of millions of dollars. The Egyptians paid up, gave extravagant thanks, solemnly swore to return the loan before, shall we say, 12 moons had passed, threatened themselves with gruesome curses if the books weren't returned in perfect condition, and proceeded to pocket them, forfeiting the deposit. The Athenian rulers were forced to tolerate the outrage. The proud capital in the times of Pericles was now reduced to a provincial city in a kingdom that could no longer compete with the power of Egypt, which dominated the grain trade, the oil of the time. Alexandria was the country's main port and its dynamic new center of operations. An economic force on such a scale has always been able to cheerfully abuse its power. All boats that docked in the city of the library, no matter their point of origin, were subject to immediate search. Customs officials requisitioned any written document found on board, had it copied on new papyrus, returned the copies, and kept the originals. These books seized on boarding ended up on the shelves of the library with a brief note describing their provenance, books from ships. When you are on top of the world, no favor is too much to ask. It was said that Ptolemy II sent messengers to the kings and rulers of every country on earth. In a sealed letter, he would ask them to take the trouble of sending him simply everything they had for his collection. All the works of the poets and prose writers of their kingdom, the orators and philosophers, the doctors and seers, the historians and everyone else. Furthermore, and this was my way into the story, the kings sent agents out to the dangerous roads and seas of the world with a full purse and orders to buy the largest possible quantity of books and to find the most ancient copies, wherever they happen to be. Such an appetite for books and the prices they could command attracted swindlers and forgers. They proffered scrolls of valuable counterfeit texts, aged the papyrus, merged several works into one, to increase its length, 
and came up with all kinds of other skillful manipulations. One wise man with a sense of humor had a marvelous time writing fraudulent works, fake originals calculated to tempt the ambition of the Ptolemies. The titles were amusing, and today it could make for bestsellers. For instance, what Thucydides left unsaid. Replace Thucydides with Kafka or Joyce, and just imagine the excitement the forger could cause when he appeared at the library with the writer's phony memories and guilty secrets under his arm. Despite prudent suspicions of fraud, the library's buyers were afraid to miss out on a potentially priceless book and risk incurring the pharaoh's wrath. The king inspected the scrolls in his collection at regular intervals, with the same pride with which he inspected military parades. He would ask the librarian, Demetrius of Phalerum, how many books now made up the collection, and Demetrius would update him on the number. There are now more than twenty dozen thousand, O king, and I endeavor to add what we need to reach five hundred thousand. The hunger for books that was unleashed in Alexandria was beginning to sow the seeds of a fervent passion. I was born in a country and an era when a book is an easy object to obtain. In my house, there are books everywhere you look. In periods of intense work, when I request dozens of them from the various libraries that tolerate my raids. I usually leave them stacked in towers on chairs or even on the floor. I also leave them open and facing down like gable roofs, in search of a house to shelter. Now, to prevent my two-year-old son from creasing the pages, I make stacks just above the couch, and when I sit down to relax, I feel their corners touching the back of my neck. When I total up the price of the books versus the average rent in the city where I live, my books turn out to be costly tenants. But all of them, from the large books of photography to the old glued pocket-sized paperbacks that always spring shut like clams, make the house a more welcoming place. The story of the efforts, journeys, and hardships undergone to fill the shelves of the Library of Alexandria may seem appealingly exotic. These are strange events, adventures like the fabled voyages to the Indies, in search of spices. Books are so common here and now, so devoid of the aura of technological novelty, that prophets of their doom abound. Every so often, I read with dismay articles predicting the extinction of books, which say that they will be replaced by electronic devices, and defeated by the endless choices of leisure activities on offer. The most ominous of these claims is that we are on the verge of a, of the end of an era, 
a true apocalypse of shuttered bookstores and abandoned libraries. They seem to suggest that books will soon be displayed in glass cases at museums of anthropology near the collections of prehistoric arrow tips. With these images engraved on my imagination, I scan my endless rows of books and vinyl records, wondering if this old world of which I'm so fond of is about to disappear. But are we sure? The book has withstood the test of history, has proved it can go the distance. Each time we awake from the dream of our revolutions, or the nightmare of our catastrophes, the book is still there. In the words of Umberto Eco, the book belongs to the same category as the spoon, the hammer, the wheel, or a pair of scissors. Once invented, these things cannot be surpassed. Of course, technology is dazzling and has the power to dethrone old monarchies. But all of us yearn for the things we've lost. Photographs, archives, old jobs, memories. Due to the speed with which they age and become obsolete. First, it was songs on cassettes, movies recorded on VHS. We devote a frustrating amount of effort to collecting the things technology is determined to put out of style. When optical discs first appeared, they told us we'd finally solved our storage problems forever. But then they came back to tempt us with new discs in a smaller format, which invariably required new devices. The irony is that we can still read a manuscript patiently copied over 10 centuries ago, but we can no longer watch a video or see the contents of a disc recorded just in the last few years, unless we keep all our successive computers and recording equipment in rooms full of junk in our homes, like a museum of obsolescence. Let's not forget that the book has been our ally for centuries in a war that is absent from history textbooks. The struggle to preserve our most valuable creations, words, which are scarcely a puff of air, the stories we tell to give meaning to chaos and to survive it, the true, false, always provisional knowledge we scratch across the hard rock of our ignorance. That's why I decided to dive into this research. In the beginning, there were questions, swarms of questions. When did books first appear? What is the secret history of efforts to reproduce or destroy them? What was lost along the way, and what was saved? Why have some of them become classics? How much has succumbed to the jaws of time, the talons of fire, the poison of water? Which books have been burnt in rage, and which have been copied with greatest passion? Are they one and the same? This account is an attempt to continue the adventure of those book hunters. I would like somehow to be their unlikely travel companion on the scent of lost manuscripts, 
unknown stories, and voices in danger of being silenced. Perhaps those groups of explorers were just henchmen employed in the service of kings, possessed by a megalomaniacal obsession. Maybe they didn't understand the momentousness of their task, which to them seemed absurd. And under the open skies at night, as the fire's embers sputtered out, they grumbled that they'd had enough of risking their lives for the dream of a madman. Surely they would have preferred to be sent out on a mission with better chances of promotion, like quashing a rebellion in the Nubian desert or inspecting cargo boats on the Nile. But I suspect that as they searched for traces of every book as if they were pieces of scattered treasure, without knowing it, they were laying the foundations of our world.